In a few minutes, we're going to be looking at some verses out of the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, you might want to go ahead and open that up to 1 Kings. And uh, we'll be looking at chapter 17. We're wrapping up a series of talks today that have been around the idea of the courage that it takes to follow God. And we have begun each week uh, with this question. Do you follow God? And uh, we have clarified that question each week to say we're not talking about are you moral? Trying to be a good person. We're not talking about are you religious? Uh, faithfully engaged in rituals and, and church type practices. But the question is. Do you follow God? And uh, the implication of that is God's doing something. God's going somewhere. And those that follow go where God goes, does what God does. And we've been talking over these weeks a little bit about what that looks like with some case studies. One of our case studies had to do with Abraham. And we were reminded that. Uh, God will often go places and lead us to follow him uh, where the circumstances are very foreign to us. It's outside of our comfort zone. It's outside of our experience. Uh, it can be kind of intimidating. Uh, the scenarios that we encounter can almost seem impossible to contend with. And it takes courage to follow God into those foreign circumstances. The next week, we had a little case study around the life of Gideon. And we were reminded that oftentimes where God goes and where he leads us is to follow him into some fearsome conflicts. Uh, there is a culture war. There is uh, a battle of ideas. And for those who will follow God and those who will oppose God and things like that. And, and we get brought right into the heart of that, right in the mix of that. And it, it takes courage to follow God into those kind of conflicting scenarios. And then last week, we did a little case study with David, and uh, we did so with this idea. Uh, it's extremely challenging to do family these days, to be family, to be a man of God in your family, to be a woman of God in your family. And uh, sometimes it feels like, you know, a gigantic situation that's too much for us. And so we uh, talked last week about the courage it takes to follow God into our family challenges and be faithful to him in our families. Uh, we're wrapping that up today, and uh, we're doing so with this uh, reminder. What we're talking about is not for the faint of heart. To uh, follow God is not for the passive. It's not for those who are squeamish and timid. It's not for those who are averse to challenge or really enjoy prosperity. Because a lot of the time, those things won't be there when you're following God. I know there's a lot of message out there in the media that talks about uh, how happy God will make you and how much he'll take care of all your problems and how he'll prosper you. And he can do that and he does do that kind of thing often. But then there are a whole lot of other times when it is the reverse of that picture. So let me... Uh, take us into our discussion today where we're talking about when it it comes down to following God, we need to have some fortifying connections around us. God will put 
people around us and He will put us around people in ways that mutually encourage and stir and support and challenge and correct and cheer on one another. And our case study today, again, comes out of the Old Testament. So let me quickly give you some history that brings you into our discussion. We, uh, over these weeks, have been talking about when ancient Israel was able to move into the Promised Land. They conquered that area and began to occupy it. God uh, gave them some people to guide them in those days called judges. Gideon was one of those guys. Then, as history continued, they came into a time of monarchy, and they began to have kings. Saul was the first, then David, then Solomon. And in those days, it was Israel's greatest day of expanse and uh, geographic largeness and world uh, uh, power and things like that. But that united kingdom was a uh, loosely held together confederation of 12 tribes, And after Solomon, that united kingdom divided, and it divided north and south. And the north was the larger portion and continued to carry the name Israel. The south was the smaller portion and began to carry the name of its largest tribe, Judah. Now, the time that we're talking about that's found in 1 Kings chapter 17 is a time in which uh, one of the most wicked kings in the history of the northern kingdom, lived. His name is Ahab. And uh, when he began to establish himself as king over uh, the northern part of Israel, he established his uh, throne and his palace in Samaria. There's a lot of history around that and a lot of history that leads into the time of Jesus. And we don't have time to touch on any of that. But it becomes a focal point at this part of the story. And also at this time, God raises up an individual, and and this is who is our case study today, a guy by the name of Elijah, who came from a little town called Tishbe, and uh, was on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, It's also a time in which uh, Israel, or the northern kingdom, is experiencing a lot of success in international trade, and primarily that's happening because of their uh, partnership, if you will, with Uh, a country to the north and west of them called Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were renowned for the way that they navigated and had mastery over the Mediterranean Sea. And so in that partnership, a lot of the goods that could be produced in Israel would then be shipped out through the Phoenicians. And uh, they had a king who had a daughter from Tyre whose name was Jezebel. And, uh, yeah, you you know that reputation. and Ahab kind of solidified their uh, partnership of their, of their nations by marrying the king's daughter, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a fervent, passionate, committed, courageous worshiper of Baal, not God, Jehovah God. Baal was like the primary uh, deity in this region and throughout these years. We talked a good bit about it a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to revisit all that. But the short of it is this. Uh, Baal was thought to be a fertility god. That is to say, if you worshipped Baal, if you followed Baal, then he would bring rain for your crops and cause you to have babies. He was a fertility god. And so uh, the people that began to inhabit the northern kingdom that were Jewish followers of Jehovah God 
began to follow after Baal and compromise their faith uh, of Jehovah God. And this is the scenario that Elijah is stepping into, and it's all going to culminate in a big contest that will happen at Mount Carmel. All right? So you already know where we're headed with that, so we're going to get into it, and we'll pick it up in chapter 17, the first verse, where we get introduced to Elijah and to Ahab. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastwards and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So uh, immediately we jump into what's going on in this scenario. If you'd read the just the few verses before chapter 17, you would have seen in detail uh, what a wicked king Ahab was and how everything that he did was dishonoring to the Lord. And so the Lord decided to uh, manifest himself and discipline his people with a drought. And, uh, of course, this was a direct stab at Baal and the thought that Baal could provide the rains and, and the fertility needed for their, their crops. And so uh, Elijah shows up on the scene and we're already introduced to his courage at that point because Jezebel has already killed hundreds of prophets of God. And there are hundreds of prophets that are now in hiding because Jezebel's trying to kill him. Elijah comes right up to the king and stares him in the face and he says, here's what you need to know. Here's a word from the Lord. It's not going to rain around here for a long time. Take that to Baal. See what he does about it. And so there is this drought for over three years. And Elijah takes off. God leads him to go across the Jordan and he's over there by a brook called Cherith. So we're introduced to Elijah and Ahab, we see how evil Ahab is. We see how courageous Elijah is, and he prophesies that there's not going to be any rain, and there's not. There's this massive drought that goes on. Let's pick up the story as we get into chapter 18. We're going to see how God prepares and he uses Elijah to confront and defeat evil. Now, this is a point that we raised last week with David. You don't just take a courage pill and all of a sudden, you know, courage muscles start popping out all over you, right? Uh, you began to engage God in a personal way, in a relational way, and out of that you develop trust in Him and your trust begins to engender and develop and give birth to courage in you. It's not a courage you already have. It's a courage that's beyond who you are and beyond what you have. And it comes out of you beginning to know Him and to trust Him. 
And God was doing this with Elijah. Elijah already knew God. Elijah already trusted God. But now God's taking Elijah into some experiences that prepare him for all that's about to happen in Mount Carmel. And so he leads him to go to the brook called Cherith. Now, I don't know about you, but I've gone to Brooks before. I've sat down at Brooks before. God has never brought a raven my way that, that fed me. Okay? The ravens were bringing food to Elijah and feeding him and nourishing him. And he was able to sustain himself at this little brook until at whatever time God said, that's enough. I want you to go somewhere else. So whenever God does something extraordinary for us, to us, around us, it's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be taken in the way of, wow, that was cool. That was fun. But that it's to be taken in such a way as, okay, God, what were you up to with me about that? Why did you allow me to have that kind of experience? What is coming in a chapter of my life that that's going to be important to? Next, God leads Elijah to go up to uh, the area of Zarephath, way up in the northwest corner of this area. And there he encounters a widow who is so down on uh, uh, the resources of life. She has just a little bit of oil in a jar. She has just a little bit of flour. And the text tells us she was going to cook one last meal for herself and her son. And then they were going to die. Pretty pessimistic, you know, outcome there. And Elijah shows up, meets this widow and says, hey, would you prepare a little food for me? And she goes, are you kidding? I don't have any food. I just have a little flour, a little oil. I was about to prepare this for me and my son, and then we're going to die. And he said, no. God has spoken to me about this. And if you will use that oil and that flour and make some cakes for me, God will see to it that you don't run out of oil and flour. And so she did. And Elijah ate. And the oil and the flour was replenished. And this happened day after day after day. And they began to see the hand of God in their midst as he provided for them daily. And then on one day, they get up to go about their day. And her son, who is the primary provider for her, suddenly dies. And she goes crying to Elijah and goes, what's this that you've brought upon me? Why has my son died? And Elijah goes and prays over her son, and he rises from the dead. Again, these are preparatory things. God's showing himself, demonstrating himself to Elijah in ways that are going to come to play when Elijah will later uh, need God in extraordinary ways. So let's pick up the story in chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. And after many days... The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Just a little footnote there to let you know Ahab is not going to be happy to see Elijah. Okay? So he hasn't seen Elijah for these three years since Elijah said God's going to make it not rain. And now Elijah's going to show up on his front door and say, hey, I'm back. And Ahab is not going to be happy. But he's going to announce to him that um, God's going to cause it to rain again, just the same way that God caused it to stop. 
Now, look also in verses 17 through 19. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Oh, it's you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have. And your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And Asherah was the consort of Baal. All of these prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. In other words, she is the provider for all of these guys. Bring them all out to meet with me at Mount Carmel. And at that point, Elijah confronts the prophets. And here's the uh, the contest that he sets up. He says, let's see who really is God in Israel today. You take a bull... You kill and cut up that bull. You prepare an altar and place that bull on the altar. And then you pray and you call upon Baal to ignite that offering with fire. And if he ignites that offering with fire, then he is God and all of Israel will worship Baal. But if he does not light that offering with fire, then I will prepare a bull prepare an altar for the Lord God, and I'll call upon him to light it with fire. And so they agreed. They thought, hey, this is a good idea. And so the text goes on to tell us they prepare the bull, they prepare the altar, they began calling upon Baal to ignite it with fire. Nothing's happening. They scream even louder. Nothing's happening. They began to cut themselves and to bleed before Baal in order to elicit pity out of Baal so that he might be responsive to them. And there is no response. And uh, Elijah has a little fun at that point and begins to say, so what's up with Baal? Literally, has he gone to the bathroom? Is he where he can't hear you right now? Is he otherwise occupied musing upon something? Has he taken a trip? Has he gone somewhere else? What's up with Baal? Of course, this is not, you know, engendering friendship with these guys. And so they continue to plead and cry and call and cut and all this kind of stuff. Nothing happens. So uh, uh, Elijah says, okay, so it's my turn. He kills the bull, cuts it up, prepares it for an offering, builds up the altar to God that had been torn down. And just for good measure, he digs a trench around it. Then he calls for some attendants to come. And they pour jugs of water and just douse it with water. All right? They say, do that again. That was good. So they bring more jugs of water and they just douse this thing. They're just filling up the trench all around it with water. He goes, I I like that. Do that one more time. So a third time they come and they just... You know, they're just dousing this thing with water. And then Elijah backs up a little bit. Everybody else takes a cue from him, backs up a little bit. And he says, so that everybody knows that you are God. Would you light this with fire? And God does. And that soaked saturated offering is immediately besieged by the fire of God and licked up and consumed. And of course, everybody is stunned and in awe. And Elijah takes the opportunity to then 
take a major step in eradicating Baalism. And he has all 850 of those prophets killed. The Bible says slaughtered. It is an ugly, ugly picture. But it's pretty descriptive of how important it is for us to eradicate idolatrous things in our hearts and in our lives. Well, you can imagine that this does not set well with Jezebel. So this ushers us into what can be called the highs and the lows that come with following God. On the high side, obviously, you've got this tremendous manifestation of God's power in the consuming of this offering. But then Elijah sits down and he begins to pray. God, now would you send the rains? And he pray, it's not just a one little request. He prays over and over and over again until clouds begin to move in. And then he begins to tell everybody, you better get in your chariot and get home because it's going to be a deluge. And the rain just begins to pour and pour and pour and pour. And the drought is broken. Also some pretty high experiences, right? I mean, I've just given you several encounters that he's had with God that would basically cause a lot of us to soar. To see God manifest himself in those kinds of ways and to do miraculous things and to answer prayers and to strike a blow against godlessness and things like that. And then there's Jezebel. So let's pick up the story in 19, beginning with verse 1. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, all, killing all of her prophets. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose And he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree or a broom tree, a big spreading tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And talk about a plunge, soaring with God, with all of these incredible manifestations, and then plummeting to the point of despair that says, you know, I don't even even want to live anymore. You ever been there? The Bible says you probably have. The Bible says in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man just like you, just like me. That he had life experiences just like we do. And here's the reality, friends. When you begin to follow God, and out of the way you know Him, you develop a deep trust in Him that gives birth to a courage for Him. And you get into these foreign circumstances and fearsome conflicts and family challenges and so on. 
It'll suck the courage and the life right out of you. If you're going it alone. If you're doing the Lone Ranger thing. Now, we didn't read all the verses, but you can read in there a couple of times where Elijah, in the midst of all of these uh, episodes, continues to declare and announce, both to himself and to other people, I'm the only one left that really follows God. I'm the only one left that really follows God. And he was not the only one left who really follows God. He was doing some courageous stuff. He definitely was taking risk and putting his neck out there. But God had other followers. Followers that Elijah needed around his life. Notice that when he's fleeing from Jezebel, even his attendant that had gone everywhere with him, he leaves behind goes, you stay here. And he goes on down to where he finds this broom tree and he crawls under it wanting to die. Isolation, separation, uh, the mistaken notion you're all alone in this. No one's ever experienced what you're experiencing right now. No one's ever gone through what you're going through. It is the sure recipe for breaking your heart, breaking your spirit, destroying your life. And that's why God has given us the gift called community. So that we not only have the gift of relationship with Him, but we have the gift of relationship with other people. Jesus didn't do it alone. Jesus had, if you will, a small group. Now, some of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Eugene Peterson. You ever read uh, the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message? He's the guy that wrote that. Uh, A lot of other books. Been in ministry for 55 years. Uh, Pastor for a long time on the East Coast. More recent days, a professor uh, in British Columbia at Regent University. Uh, Peterson actually is a graduate of SPU right here uh, in Seattle. And uh, he tells the story of when he first began to be a minister. In his first couple of years of serving a Presbyterian church in the Northeast. And uh, he was particularly in a community that was filled with artists. He'd never been around artists. Uh, He didn't understand to the degree that they can be a different breed sometimes. And uh, he was striking up friendships and appreciating what he was developing with these guys. And he, he... Particularly struck up a friendship with a guy by the name of Willie, who was a painter, particularly with oils and canvas. And uh, Willie had uh, been in Germany during the war, and he had seen the German church abdicate to Hitler and to Nazism. And he was very bitter about the church, very bitter about clergy and ministers. He felt like they all were soulless individuals and uh, just shells of people who went through religious pretenses and practices uh, without really having any compassion for people. But yet he liked, he, he, he loved Eugene Peterson. And uh, not a few times they would have a conversation 
and Peterson's faith would be evident in the conversation. And Willie would say, uh, why, why, why do you believe that? Why would you give your life to that? Why would you be a minister? Please, please, please don't be a minister. I care about you. I love you. I, I don't want to see you ruin your life by being a minister. And Peterson never could really grasp why this was such a passionate thing for Willie. So uh, on one occasion, Willie says, I, I want to paint you. Would you allow me to paint you? And so Peter, Peterson sat for him. And uh, after a number of days, Willie painted him. And you see just a little bit of the framed uh, portrait there in the picture. And while he was sitting for the, the painting one day, and Willie was painting away, Willie's wife comes in. And they speak in their home with one another German. And so she begins to say to him in German things that are not sounding like they're that complimentary. And Peterson, you know, later kind of looks up these words that she was hearing him, hearing her say to him. And they were words like sick, sick, sick. And, and he responded to her in German and didn't know exactly what was said in return. But on the day that the portrait was finished, that was the first time he allowed Peterson to look at it. And when Peterson looks at it, it was kind of stunning because uh, he was wearing a black robe and he had a red Bible in his lap and his hands were folded. You know, it's, it's typical to what you'd find for portraits. But he was very thin and gaunt and his eyes looked pretty vacant and empty. And Peterson's looking at this curiously and then he replays that conversation from a few days prior with the wife and he says, what was your wife saying to you? And Willie said, well, she was telling me I was making you look sick. And I said, no, I'm not making you look sick. That's exactly the way you will look in 20 years if you be a minister. And Peterson said that became a defining moment for him. That he would not be drawn into the whole corporate thing that can happen with churches, offices, officers, meeting objectives, you know, uh, plowing the ground of advances and buildings and budgets and all these kinds of things. He was determined from that day on that he was going to be a community, relational, lovingly engaged with, doing life with kind of minister. He's been doing it for 55 years. But he says, I have kept that portrait in my closet for all these years as a constant reminder. I cannot become isolated. I cannot become separated. I must always be engaged with the community that God's putting around me. Well, Elijah was able to persevere. Elijah was able to go on. And Elijah had some great, glorious experience with God that we don't have time to talk about. But later in the New Testament, you'll recall that Jesus has this mystical kind of experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, as he is there, God causes two Old Testament heroes to appear to Jesus. One is Moses. One is Elijah. There's some remarkable things that go on with the rest of the story. But here's what God began to do in Elijah's life 
to keep him from self-destructing. For one, he began to refresh him. And so once again, he began to feed and to give water and to nourish him. And friends, it's a word to us when we get fatigued, when we get tired, when we get weary in the walk with God, when it begins to exact a toll on us and we're wondering, how can I go on? You've got to find a way to get refreshed in God, with God, by God. You'll notice also as you continue to read the story, God began to revision Elijah. See, what's left after Mount Carmel? And the calling for rain. He goes, well, there's a lot left. I want you to go do this. I want you to go do that. I want you to go do this other. And he began to put new marching orders out there, a new call on his life. And then you'll notice in the last place that he began to reconnect with others, particularly with his successor, a guy named Elisha. And there was some meaningful stuff that began to go on with Elisha and with the school of prophets that Elisha was a part of. So he was refreshed, he was revisioned, he was reconnected. All of which we have to have. So what will you do with that? We've been asking you every week. Will you get to know God? This is a relational thing. This is not a religious thing. And the way that we get to know God is through Jesus. Will you get to know God through Jesus? Will you begin to build your life? On Christ. You build it around God, not fitting God in to your already going life. Will you follow God in every way? We brought that home to you last week with a resolution, and we detailed a lot of different ways that God's looking for you to follow Him and to be faithful to Him. Will you follow Him in every single way? Friend, if you're saying yes to that, then you must also say that you'll do that with others. That you'll allow Him to fortify you, strengthen you, uh, build into you by connecting with significant others. There's a lot of ways that happens. A primary way that happens around here is with our small groups. Where you get honest, you get real, you get authentic, you get raw with one another. I've got a group that, uh, along with what I do in the church, I've got a group of pastors I've been meeting with for ten years, over ten years. Every week, we sit down with penetrating questions with each other. We check in on each other's soul. We love one another. We encourage when it's low. We celebrate when it's high. One of them just said to me this past Wednesday when we met, I cannot believe God has given me the gift of this group. I don't think I would still be in it if he hadn't. He just said that to me three days ago. Let's pray together. So, Father, in your wisdom and in your care, you have reminded us in this hour of the importance of community, of other relationships through which you work to fortify our hearts. I pray for each friend in the house today, some of whom really struggle to be connected with others, some of whom really have a proclivity to do the Lone Ranger thing. I pray, Father, that you have addressed those concerns in their heart today and they take a risk on relationship. God, that you would stir courage in us to take a risk on community, on giving our heart to people, on doing some journey with one another. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.